This is the Mathematics Education Podcast from MathEdPodcast.com. Welcome to the Math Ed Podcast. My name is Sam Otten from the University of Missouri, and my guest today is uh, Dr. Ed Silver, who's the William A. Brownell Collegiate Professor in the School of Education at the University of Michigan. Ed, thanks for being here. Oh, yeah, it's great. Um, so, Ed is the co-PI of the Quasar Project, a past editor of JRME, um, and has had quite a prestigious career in mathematics education, so we're going to kind of talk across Ed's career. So let's start at the very beginning. What was it that brought you into math education? And I know that you had a little bit of a non-traditional start into the math teaching side of things. Yeah, well, I accidentally bumped into math education. I was at the University of Maryland, and I was studying mathematics. I was in the PhD program in mathematics, and I, I met uh, Jim Fay, who was a faculty member with a joint appointment in the mathematics department and in the College of Education there, and we were talking about various uh, things, uh, and Jim invited me to come and sit in on a seminar that he was teaching in math education, and so I did, and that was the first time I had understood that there was a field called mathematics education. I'd been a mathematics major as an undergraduate and was planning to... I didn't know what I was planning to do, but I was in a PhD program in mathematics, so I was probably on my way to being a professor in mathematics. Uh Uh-huh. And then what happened was my my uh, career got interrupted. My studies got interrupted by family illness, so I had to go home and and uh, take help take care of my mother, who was very ill. And so I went back to New York. And Jim, before leaving, Jim told me I should investigate the math ed program at Teachers College, which is where he had graduated. Uh-huh. And um, so it happened that I fell into a teaching job. Then it was possible in those days to hire me as a teacher in a school that needed a, somebody who knew math, and nobody else on the faculty knew any math. I knew math, but I didn't know anything about teaching. Uh-huh. I'd never taken an education course. And so those people were able to hire me at the school with, as long as I promised and then followed through on the promise that I would actually pursue getting the courses needed for certification. So I enrolled in a master's program at, at Teachers College in math education and did what I needed to do to get certified. Uh-huh. And that's how I got into math education. And I found out that I really liked it. Yeah. I liked teaching and I liked math education. <laughs> and it was a way of combining two things that... Um, that really appealed to me. So, right. Uh, and then you did your doctoral work at Teachers College at That's Columbia right. University as well. That's so right. um, what did your dissertation focus on? Who did you work with at that level? Well, I was the student that Jeremy Kilpatrick abandoned when he <laughs> when he left Teachers College oh. and went to the University of Georgia. And you scared him away? I or? had been. Maybe, maybe the thoughts of working with me as a doctoral student were enough to drive him all the way to Athens, Georgia. I'm not sure. But Jeremy was my advisor, and and then he um, took the opportunity that uh, Georgia offered him and, uh, and left. And so right at the stage when I was about to propose my dissertation. So a former student of his named Phil Smith, who many people probably never heard of, but Phil was a student of Jeremy's and he was someone who taught. Um, he was on the faculty, math faculty at Southern Connecticut College and he would come down every week and teach a course at Teachers College. And so Phil was actually my, my dissertation supervisor, oh. and my work was in the area of problem solving. And what I was interested in was the question of how, how students recognized 
relationships among mathematics problems. So Polya's suggestion that it was a good idea to think of a related problem mm-hmm. seemed like a really great idea as long as you were thinking about a related problem in, a, in the right way. Yeah, and, a related um, problem that would help someone. What did it mean for problems to be related? And I was interested in how students thought about that. I was teaching seventh graders at the time, so I had a population that I could, I could use in my study, and so I designed a study that I could use in, with my own students to to uh, pursue, and I did it, and um, then I discovered some relationship that didn't quite I didn't quite understand, so then I replicated the study again the next year, so I actually ended up spending a couple of years doing, the, doing that dissertation study, because mm-hmm. I really wanted to understand the data as, that, I, that I got, and um, that's what launched my, my mm-hmm. uh, studies in mathematical problem solving. Mm-hmm. And, and was that how you would characterize your research in the 1980s, was around different facets of problem solving? Yeah, or? I think that's right. I think that I was really interested in, in uh, mathematical problem solving, and that was, of course, the, the, the moment in time in history when cognitive science, if you will, cognitive psychology was moving much more prominently into into play. When I was an undergraduate, I was very interested in psychology, but it was mostly rat psychology in, oh, in yeah. college, and and I wasn't so interested in rats. You know, mm-hmm. I was more interested in people, and the only kind of people psychology was abnormal psychology. Wow. So I was very excited about cognitive psychology because it really was a study of the human mind and how uh, how people learned, thought about complex tasks, and so it was a natural dovetail, really, with my interest in mathematical problem solving mm-hmm. and that influenced my dissertation to some extent and influenced a lot what I then spent my time mm-hmm. doing. Are there any key things that you feel like you did figure out as you were trying to really understand what was going on in that area? Well, I wrote a paper once for for, uh, ICMI that um, basically said something about um, the influences of information processing psychology. On a clear day, I can see implications. And it was was a play on the title of a of a movie at the time, but um, it it was very clear that there was something there Uh about the way in which uh, psychologists were looking at complex thinking that seemed really important. I mean, they were focusing on representations, they were focusing on on, uh, sequential thinking, on and reasoning, uh, linking various ideas to each other. All of these seemed really important in, in mathematics. I was interested in the practic- more pragmatic aspects of it. Most psychologists were interested in the theoretical aspects of it. They were interested in how they could instantiate a particular theory, a particular version of cognitive psychology in, in a computer program or in some simulation. And I was more interested in how you could take those ideas and apply them to teaching and learning but it was a productive interplay, and, and I think that um, it got us it got us pretty far. And then we realized that it didn't explain everything that we cared about, and mm-hmm. so we ended up exploring other things like metacognition, and and um, and then got interested in affect and motivation, and a whole host of other things that really weren't adequately explained, and lots of anomalies like the the things that that um, situated cognition brought to the fore that people surprisingly exhibit certain capacities in certain situations mm-hmm. and and seem incapable of thinking that way in another situation and how do you explain that if they're carrying this around in their in their brain you know right. how does this make yeah. sense you know so the whole notion of transfer you know it's still with us we still don't understand a mm-hmm. whole lot about how what the notion of transfer really means and yeah. and um so I, I love to plague my students with that now when we study uh, psychology in, uh, in relation to mathematics. Mm-hmm. 
So if we move into the 1990s, you were very involved in the Quasar Project, yeah. so I want to talk to you about that for a bit. Um, so first of all, could you just, um, in case there are some listeners who aren't familiar with it, could you just give us a brief overview of the Quasar Project and its goals? Yeah, so, you know, the Quasar Project really was launched at the time that the NCTM Curriculum and Evaluation Standards came forward. And those those standards, as, as everybody probably knows, sort of proposed a, a pretty radically different view of what mathematics might be, a, a mathematics, school mathematics might be, one that really was focused heavily on understanding, that was focused heavily on problem solving and reasoning, that was focused on, on sort of engaging students in, in thoughtful activity in mathematics. That was not the way in which mathematics was taught in, particularly in low-income schools, um, in low-income communities in um, in the United States, and in those schools, the data was very clear that kids were getting um, drill and practice. They were getting a, a repeated uh, exposure to arithmetic and very little else um, throughout middle school into early high school years, and and this meant that they really had no access to anything like um, a reasonable pathway to college mathematics through high school. So um, we took that as a starting point, and the, the premise of the Quasar Project was that we wanted to see if it was possible for the teachers uh, in those schools to teach that stuff that the NCTM standards was about to those kids in those communities um, and what it would take to support them to do that. And so we, were, we got very generous support from the Ford Foundation, we set out to identify schools where we initially we thought this is where it will be happening already. Well, we didn't find any places where it was happening already, but we found some places where people were willing to give it a try. Mm-hmm. And um, they were quite different in the way that they thought they would go about doing this. And, and then we provided money to support the teachers and, and partners, re- what we called resource partners at the time, sometimes university faculty, other folks in the community, who would support them in their, in their work. And then we studied what went on in their classrooms, we studied student outcomes, we, we tried to track what the impact of trying to teach mathematics in this way would be in those schools, in those communities, and to learn from that in ways that we thought then could be um, uh, transferred to other, to mm-hmm. other schools. And it really was quite an amazing adventure. We were in six different communities um, in the United States, this was all middle school, um, and over about an eight-year period. We were in the schools intensively for five years, and then the analysis continued for about three years after that. And, um, um, you know, we learned quite a lot, and I think that the, the work has had ripple effects in lots of other places. Yeah, so I wanted to ask you about that, um, but first, uh, just in terms of geography, so you're at the University of Pittsburgh now, and so who are some of the other people that were involved in the project? Yeah, so Mary Kay Stein was... Um, was uh, the person who was involved in really leading the effort to study classroom practice. Um, Peg Smith, who was a graduate student at the time at the University of Pittsburgh, along with Kathy Brown, who was at the university, now at the uh, at Indiana University, um, was visiting at Pittsburgh at the time. Um, they paid a lot of attention to professional development activity, um, and Peg did a lot of other things in the project. And then Suzanne Lane, who was a, an assessment specialist, a measurement specialist, she developed the um, assessment and then did a lot of the data collection around student assessment. And there were a whole passel of graduate students who have gone on to have 
uh, interesting careers in in, uh, in mathematics education. Uh, Barbara Grover and Marge Henningsen and Jin Fakai and and others. Peg Peg herself, who were um, graduate students on the project at the time. So mm-hmm. it was quite an interesting interdisciplinary team. Mm-hmm. So uh, what did you end up finding in terms of that that main question of in these urban settings trying to enact this sort of NCTM-oriented or reform-oriented mathematics instruction? Well, one thing we found was that it was really hard to do, um, and one of the reasons it was hard to do is because we were doing it right at the very outset of the release of the the, uh, NCTM standards. And at that point, there was no connected math project materials. There were no elementary school uh, materials for students to gear them up to um, to doing well in middle school and more in this sort of more challenging mathematics and so it was very hard to do there was a lot of invention uh, of curriculum that was going on and that's not always a, a great way to support um, changes in practice but certainly there was an intensive amount of professional development work that was going on huge amount of development um, of individuals. I mean, a lot of the teachers who were involved in the project, um, many of these schools, actually I think the majority of the schools where we worked are no, lo- no longer exist. They've oh, been wow. um, decommissioned, as it were. Wow. Um, they've been closed because of shifts in, in the population and enrollment. In a lot of urban school districts have lost enrollment, and, and uh, the one places where we were were no, no exception. And most of these schools don't exist anymore. But the people had a huge impact on math education in their community, in their school districts, beyond their school. Many of them went into positions in the school district where they influenced in other projects and, and uh, other people. Some of them went back for, for advanced degrees and uh, became faculty members at other places. And so while we, when we started, we really thought about effects on a school, which then would ripple out to effects on a building. Mm-hmm. We found out that really interesting stuff that happened was really centered on the people. Uh-huh. It was really the people who, who were affected deeply. But we found that it was possible that it was difficult to do, but when teachers were able to do something that was at least spiritually consistent with what and what the NCTM standards were promulgating, that you could get effects that were noticeable with kids, and um, and that you know that continues to this day. There's a lot of examples I think that have found similar things that when when there's a consistent effort to try to infuse problem-solving and reasoning and conceptual understanding as an emphasis in the curriculum. The kids can learn that stuff, and, the, and all kids can learn that stuff. It's, it is a challenge to, to do it on a consistent basis, and there are lots of forces that act to, to try to restrict your ability to do that in a sustained way. Mm-hmm. We had a lot of money in that project, so we were able to push past some of those forces, but under normal circumstances, it's harder. Right. My guest is Ed Silver from the University of Michigan. He's a co-PI on the Quasar Project, and so we're talking about some of the impacts that that had on practice and on the teachers, the schools, the students, but also there were a lot of research outcomes that came from Quasar. So I was wondering if you could say a little bit, too, about what you see as kind of the um, legacy of Quasar in terms of the research community. Well, there's there's a very interesting aspect of Quasar that has... um intrigued me for for a while now. One of the things that that happened was that um, in Mary Kay's work, uh, Mary Kay Stein's work in the analysis of classroom practice, she was um, using this um, adaptation of a notion of um, 
academic task that Walter Doyle developed and developed this thing called the Mathematical Tasks Framework as a tool to help analyze what was happening in the lessons uh, that were observed. And she and some colleagues published a paper in AERJ, and that paper um, has been very widely cited. It has gotten a lot of uptake by other researchers. And what's interesting is that it's not only had an impact in the research community, but also in the practice community, because the mathematical test framework was then picked up and used to frame a set of of, uh, narrative cases that were based on lessons, episodes from the Quasar classrooms that represented different patterns of, of the idea was that tasks go through stages and and that um, act like cognitively demanding tasks, which is what we were trying to get teachers to use in the project, um, the demand can be maintained through a lesson or it can diminish, right? And and what happens in U.S. classrooms typically, according to the Tim studies in particular, is that it often diminishes, right? If you start with a cognitively demanding task, you don't end up having the demand maintained through the lesson. Whereas in other higher-performing countries, you tend to see the lesson maintained, the cognitive demand maintained. So anyway, this idea led us to craft these cases, which then were used in professional development and teacher education, which led to more cases because people wanted more, and then led to other things that now has um, most recently... Mary Kay and Peg have written this book that NCTM published called The Five Practices for Orchestrating Productive Discourse, and that's very much based, sort of spawned from the, um, the Quasar use of the mathematical test framework and the initial work that analyzing that. And so it's, it's worked both in the practice community and in the research community because the five practices itself was a result of another analytic piece of work that was published in a research journal in uh, cognition and instruction i believe so you know it's there's been a very interesting interplay on both both the practice community and the research community so it's one of those interesting examples of something that seems to have spanned the two communities that ordinarily don't have much to do with each other mm-hmm. so you also served a stint as a, the editor of the journal for research and mathematics education and you're also um the middle school writing chair for principles and standards uh, that came out in 2000. So I was wondering if you wanted to share sort of uh, some of your experiences in those positions. Well, I mean, I think that um, both both were terrific um, opportunities to serve the professional community. I mean, um, Jeremy is um, a very unusual and special outlet, really. I mean, um, most professional teaching organizations don't sponsor the major research journal in their field. Um, And I think that NCTE is the only other organization that does that. Um, So it's only English and mathematics where this happens. And and so JRME has a very special place because it's it's not only the major research journal, so it's very important to the research community, but it's also embedded within NCTM, and that makes it important as a, a representation of what the practice community values as well. So, you know, the stewardship of JRME was a very special opportunity, and, and I had been on the editorial panel before, and I had some sense of what I was um, getting myself into. Um, <laughs> but... Um, you know, it's a it's a unique opportunity to have some influence on the field to try to help encourage, um, particularly junior authors, and and to help people fashion uh, articles that have some promise into something that's really um, of a much higher quality, and to to help to 
to grow and communicate um, the value of research in the field. And, and um, I think the journal has played an important role through the reviewing process and the feedback process that goes to reviewers as well as authors in helping to cultivate an appreciation of what's involved in, in, um, in growing the journal. The NCTM Principles and Standards was also a great opportunity. I mean, I, I, I really enjoyed the opportunity to interact with such a really quite a diverse group of people. I mean, um, I spent a lot of time interacting with the other grade level leaders and then also with the people within my grade level band. That was great fun. Um, we had mathematicians and and people who were practitioners and people who were researchers and people who were teacher educators and people, you know we had a whole variety of folks there and then a lot of cross uh, grade band conversations and and um, your colleague Barb Reyes and I would have lots of conversations in the morning walks um, <laughs> as we would prepare for the day and um, Barb always had a way of asking just the right question to um, set me off on thinking something that I needed to be thinking about more, more uh, uh, in a more profound way. So, so it was um, it was a terrific experience. I think um, um, we really set out to try to not so much change the NC10 curriculum evaluation standards so much as to try to um, clarify and to and to crystallize some of what we thought was intended there that had been misunderstood, that had been misinterpreted. And uh, and I think we did a pretty good job. I mean, I think that I'm not sure that the document itself had a huge impact on the field at the time, in part because it wasn't controversial. Um, it was widely accepted and, and very thoroughly vetted. And actually, I'd say that studying the way in which um, the NCTM and Gary Martin at NCTM was he at the time was working at NCTM. He's now at Auburn University. He was the guy who actually did this. Every piece of feedback that was received on the on the drafts that were s- circulated got put into a database, and it was a qualitative database. And all this stuff was analyzed in terms of the kind, the professional status of the person who made the comment, what kind of job did they have, <laughs> what, it, what parts of the document did they point to, what did they say, and that was all synthesized for the writers so that wow. we had this information. So it was a wonderful example of how qualitative research methods mm-hmm. could turn out to be very useful in mm-hmm. some way that really wasn't research, but it was actually a, a very practical project of producing a document that yeah. wow. helped to move the field forward. But. I mean, it was a it was a sort of watershed moment, I think, and and uh, I'm very proud. I think there's a lot of antecedents of the Common Core st- uh, standards in that document. Some things I think we actually did better, but um, not that the Common Core refers to it, but but it, it's there. And and yeah. if you, when historians sit down to look mm-hmm. at this, I think they'll they'll see the the continuity. Right. So speaking of Common Core, I did want to ask you what you see as some of the main challenges in the field of math education right now, and maybe some are related to Common Core, but some are maybe in terms of looking at the research landscape currently. Yeah, well, I, I'm not sure I, about the Common Core. I mean, we'll see where this where this lands. I mean, I do think that right now, I think one of the biggest challenges we have, it's not unique to math education, but... It's um, in the United States. I think we have an incredibly limited conception of teaching, and um, one of the things that's been really interesting to look at international data on teaching is to see how many more contact hours um, teachers in the United States have with students than teachers in other countries have. So um, most of the time, the attention is on how much they get paid, 
mm-hmm. um, or how much vacation time they have or whatever. But but if you look at what what ha- the United States is an outlier in terms of contact hours, and I think that derives from a very limited conception of what teaching is in the U.S., which is that teaching is when teachers are with kids in a classroom setting teaching a lesson, right? In, in most other countries, teaching entails uh, observing other teachers teach. It entails providing detailed feedback to students on the work that they've done. Mm-hmm. It involves preparing for, for the next lessons. Mm-hmm. Um, all of those things are part of teaching. All those things require work outside of the teaching day for American teachers. And, and you know, people are exhausted. And when you start to pile on top of that all the paperwork requirements and the reporting requirements and all the extra things, I mean, I think teachers are incredibly hardworking, well-intentioned, um, and the math teachers that I've come in contact with through my professional development work, I mean, they're there doing, doing a lot more than they have to do to try to get better at their craft. But, but everything about the arrangement seems to fight against them, you know. And so I think there's a huge problem that we have of not supporting teachers in ways that um, would really enhance their work, right? So we don't have a systematic way of of providing professional development, and we have ways of, of overburdening them with with things that don't contribute to high-quality teaching. And then we just want to be critical of the fact that the teaching doesn't result in, in better learning. And so I think we have a big problem uh, with that. I think the problem is, is um, not unique to math, but because math is so heavily tested and mm-hmm. it's such a big part of the accountability system, a lot of the the hammer falls on math teachers mm-hmm. uh, in this regard. So, so I think that's a huge issue for us. Yeah, I'm speaking with Ed Silver from the University of Michigan, who's an NCTM Lifetime Achievement Award winner and also the SIG RME Senior Scholar Award recipient. Um, so, again, giving that perspective, and I know over your career you've tried to balance, and I think you you know we can hear it right now as you speak, balance uh, practice, practical issues, and balance research as well. Um, so you've kind of identified a pretty big practical concern that you have with the field right now. I also want to turn to the research side, and looking forward, is there any kind of areas of research that you would kind of challenge those of us in the field of math education to kind of really try to dig into and investigate empirically? Well, you know, one of the things that led, led us to undertake the Quasar Project was a deep concern about the disparities in educational achievement in the country. Um, those disparities have not gone away, really. Um, so, um, I mean, we have very large disparities, whether you look at socioeconomic status, whether you look at race, whether you look at um, location, however you slice it, we have huge disparities, not all of which can be related to um, what goes on inside schools, uh, much of which relates to um, the social context in which education occurs, but some of which um, has to do with the distribution of resources within uh, two schools and within schools, across schools and so on. Um, I'm really struck by the fact that a country like Canada, you know, where people belong to the same, the teachers there belong to the same professional organization that our teachers do, mm-hmm. um, and the we share a lot of history. We share, we breathe the same air for the most part. Um, theirs is a little chillier, um, uh, but um, that that they manage to perform very well. For example, on PISA, you have very high levels of performance for math, science, and reading in PISA, 
So the kids and 15-year-olds in Canada are doing quite well relative to the rest of the world. And the very relatively small disparities um, between the top and bottom quartiles or quintiles of, of SES or, or um, um, other, other measures, income measures, relatively small between school differences compared to the United States um, and much of the rest of the world. So most of the differences are happening within school. I mean, some some kids do better than other kids, and mm-hmm. that happens, right? Mm-hmm. And that's okay. Um, but between school differences seem to suggest that there's something about the way in which achievement, opportunity, and uh, access is being distributed. And we have a big problem with that in this country. And I think the inequitable distribution of, of resources to learn mathematics and to and the inequitable opportunities to to succeed in it are a huge problem that more and more people are are starting to pay attention to when we started quasar hardly anybody in the field was paying attention to these things now there's much broader appreciation of that i think that ought to be the major focus of the field for the next 20 years um, and <laughs> until and, there's until we can start of, to see some yeah. real differences and it it probably will take a kind of generational effort to to mm-hmm. make a dent in this problem because we've we've mm-hmm. got a legacy that's um, long lasting in this yeah. and this is a but you know STEM is not going to succeed unless we can manage to integrate more and more uh, students and take more of the human resources that we have available to us in the country and get them into that pipeline in some sensible way. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. Maybe just to lighten things up a bit here and, and end on a, a little bit more uh, optimistic note. Um, imagine now that you weren't concerned with math education at all. Maybe imagine an alternate reality where you were not in the field of mathematics education. Uh, looking back, what could you maybe see yourself doing instead of math ed? Well, it's interesting. I, I, when, I, when I was a, a, a growing up, I always wanted to be a doctor. And I um, always thought that's what I would pursue. And for not very good reasons, I ended up not doing that. Um, and um, and then when I got to college, I thought I would be a classics major. I was going to major in Latin and Greek. Wow. You know? um, so I can imagine alternate realities. I don't know how. And then I fantasize, you know, being a matador or being a fighter pilot or something like that. But uh-huh. um, um, I really don't know what I would what I would do. I mean, I really have felt incredibly privileged to have had the opportunity to have the career that I've had and the opportunity I mean I've worked with I've worked at a number of different institutions with great colleagues everywhere um, in the places where I've had uh, doctoral students I've I've really enjoyed working with those students it's been a terrific opportunity professionally met so many interesting colleagues in the US and around the world and I, I just can't it's almost like I can't imagine doing anything else now you know mm-hmm. um and uh, well, I do think a little bit about retirement uh-huh. and what I might do then. Um, I guess I'd spend more time with our horses, you know. And, oh. um, my daughter has has brought horses into my life, so um, so we have horses where we live, and uh, might do a little bit more of that. And and think about other ways that um, you know I might I might be able to contribute talents. Go back and and uh, remember what it was like to um, to teach uh, younger younger kids and and. Uh, and uh, help them develop their uh, mm-hmm. their own uh, ideas. So maybe go back and rekindle some of that. So, yeah. Anyway. My guest has been Ed Silver from the University of Michigan. Ed, thanks so much for taking the time to well, speak Well, thank you, Sam. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you, and, uh, and I appreciate the work that...
Thank you for listening to this episode of the MathEd Podcast. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, please use the PayPal donation button at mathedpodcast.com.